Good morning, friends. Uh, first of all, a little apology. I was unable to take my message live today, so this is being recorded in the, my friendly confines of the Husker Man Cave. We're at uh, in our message series called Equip You, where part six is the sixth chapter of First Timothy. And today we're actually concluding our series on First Timothy. The good news is that in a couple of weeks, a new series is going to start. It's going to be called Jesus Stories. But next Sunday, we're celebrating our first anniversary as Restore, and my message will be Vision, Mission, and Passion. Now, today, we're going to start with Paul talking about a believer's attitude towards money. In fact, today's text contains one of the most misquoted verses in all the Bible. Money is the root of all evil. But that's not what Paul said. What he actually said is in verse 10 of chapter 6, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So we know money in and of itself is neither good nor bad. The heart and the motives of the person who has the money or who's out to get money is what determines the effect money has on any person or in any situation. So today we're going to talk about a believer's attitude towards money and work. But before we get there, I'm going to take a little bit of a side road and deal with something else in this chapter. Now, as has happened in previous chapters, Paul references a cultural value that has dramatically changed over the years. He talks about slavery, and he speaks of it in a rather matter-of-fact way. Now, there are a number of Bible critics, I've read a number of them, who obviously say, why didn't Paul or any other Bible writer condemn slavery? Well, that's a fair question. But if you put yourself into the mind of a first-century citizen, you can begin to understand the cultural attitude towards slavery. And even though Paul was writing divinely inspired scripture, he was not the fourth person of the Trinity. You see, the Holy Spirit inspired his writings, but he didn't dictate them word for word. Paul wrote from his own experience and his own perspective, and as a result, his letters show that he was truly a man of his time. So that's how God has chosen to give us a divinely inspired scripture, through the writings of people like Peter and James and John and Paul, and of course, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I mean, therefore, Paul therefore probably couldn't envision a world in which slavery didn't exist. In fact, in Paul's day, they say almost 40% of Rome's population were slaves. So the world's economy was built on slave labor. And you add that, add to that fact that during the first century, the church had no political influence. I mean, Christians were, after all, were being persecuted in prison and fed to wild animals in the Colosseum in Rome. I mean, they, they were not in a position to demand social change. So when Paul acknowledges the existence of slavery, he's not condoning it. He never refers to slavery as a good and marvelous institution. In fact, he refers to it as a burden. But then he says things that were pretty radical. He tells slaves to work for their masters as if they're working for the Lord. Then he tells masters, extremely countercultural, treat your slaves with respect as brothers in the Lord. You can read more about that in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, one reason we understand this today is because the Bible teaches the dignity of all people and the equality of all people. Even when Paul was telling slaves and masters how to treat one another, he was planting seeds of change with such ideas that you could read in Galatians 3.28, where he says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, slaves nor free, male nor female, for you are all what? All one in Christ Jesus. So as we read, we need to discern the underlying principle that Paul is teaching and give consideration to how we can apply that principle to our lives. That's why when Paul talks about slaves and masters, we need to think about how this applies to 
our work life. Now, with that, we're going to move back from the side road and dig into the part where Paul talks about a believer's attitude toward work and his attitude towards money. And there are three things I believe that Paul wants to show us. And first of all, he's telling us to do your job with integrity. And I love that word integrity. It means to have a one-piece heart. So in verse 1 of chapter 6, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. See, those who write about slavery in ancient world tell us that there was a a bit of enmity between slaves and masters. I mean, slaves typically did as little as they could get away with, and masters typically had the attitude that you had to beat a slave in order to get him or her to do the simplest task. So Paul says, look, you're under this burden of slavery. There's nothing you can do about that, but you can treat your master with respect, and you can do your job with integrity, and when you do this, God will be glorified. Now, I think you can see how this, his words apply today. I mean, over the years, I'm sure many of us have either have or had bosses that we felt were a little bit incompetent and ineffective, and maybe we didn't think that they were worthy of respect. But friends, it doesn't matter whether your boss is brilliant or a buffoon. Uh, The position itself is worthy of respect. So treat your bosses respectfully whether or not you feel they deserve it. But treating your boss with respect doesn't necessarily define your boss, but it does define you. If you're waiting for that perfect boss or a perfect company or a perfect jobs or the perfect paycheck to come along before you give yourself 100%, well, good luck on that one. I don't think it's ever going to happen. There will always be inadequacies in the workplace and the people you work for. There will always be something you can use as an excuse for phoning in your job performance. See, how well you work doesn't say anything about your job. It says something about you and your character. People with integrity do their job well. Now, I remember when I got my first job. Now, my first job, by that I mean I had a summer job. And my grandpa gave me some valuable advice. He said something like this. Every job you get, do it as if you were called to do it the rest of your life. Now, my first full-time job in the summer was working as a car hop at Dale's Drive-In. I really couldn't envision myself doing that the rest of my life. In the next year, I worked for a produce company where I was hauling grain and seeds out to people's car and candling eggs and killing chickens. And again, I thought, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. But see, Paul says something along these lines in Colossians 3.23. He says, whatever you do, whether it's a part-time job, whether it's just a summer job, whatever it is, work with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. I think that's what my grandpa was trying to tell me. In other words, do your job with integrity and treat your boss with respect. Even if he or she doesn't deserve it, give 100%. And and by the way, if your boss happens to be a believer, make it 110%. Listen to verse 2. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they're to serve them even better because these or those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. Now, I, I know that some probably Christian employees think that they should get special treatment or should get paid more for doing less or or whatever simply because they go to the same church as the boss. Now, sadly, I've had some Christian employers tell me I really have trouble with almost every Christian I ever hire. And I know a few Christian employees have said, I'll never work for another Christian again. They expect too much and pay too little. Now, while it works both ways, Paul's speaking specifically to workers here. He's saying, if your boss is a believer... Don't try to get away with anything by doing less. In fact, work even harder because your boss is your brother or your sister in Christ. 
The underlying principle here in Paul's words to the slaves in Ephesus is that Christians need to do their jobs with integrity. Not being a slacker, but working hard with an attitude of respect. And when you work this way, sometimes your boss changes. Becomes a better boss. Sometimes a better job comes along that's just right for someone with a good attitude who's willing to work hard. And every time that you commit yourself to do your job with integrity, working for the Lord rather than for men, you get more satisfaction from your effort. Now, here's the second thing I think Paul's teaching us here in chapter 6. Manage your money with contentment. Now, as Paul has done repeatedly through these six chapters, he talks about false teachers and the trouble they stir up in the church. He talks about how conceited they are and how they love to stir up controversy. They love to create friction. And so Paul says in verse 6 that they think godliness is a measure to financial gain. Well, guess what? This was early first century prosperity gospel teaching. And it was wrong then, it's wrong now. See, Paul then says that godliness is a measure of great gain when seasoned with contentment. Now, here's one of the paradoxes of prosperity. The more content you are without something, the more likely you are to receive something. Conversely, if you have to have something in order to be happy, the odds are better than ever that you're never going to get it. And if you do get it, you're going to probably slip, let it slip right through your fingers because what I found even in my own life, God gives you only what he can trust you with. If you have to have something in order to be happy, he can't fully trust you. You're likely to pull all, put all your hope and happiness in that thing rather than God himself. And I've seen this happen again and again in some way even as it approaches personal relationship. I mean, I've known people who are so desperate to be married and then watch them go through one messy breakup after another. And then all of a sudden, one day, they got to the point where they said, you know, I can be content being single. Guess what? God brings the right person into their life. I've even seen that in people's financial lives. You know, when they finally stop grabbing for dollars and start needing things to be happy and to learn and learn and experience contentment with or without things, they experience more abundance. See, people who are truly content with what they have most often have more than they need. Contentment doesn't come naturally, though, that's for sure. It's something you got to learn. That's part of being a disciple. Trusting in riches is the opposite of contentment, and Paul warns us about that. Verse 17, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. See, Paul's talking about contentment. And it's interesting that uh, Paul said God provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Do you get that? Enjoyment not satisfaction, because things can be enjoyed, but they cannot provide long-term satisfaction. That kind of contentment only comes when you place God at the center of your life, because it's, it's not something money can buy. Now, friends, if I can give you a piece of advice here, there's nothing you can buy on a credit card that can bring enough joy into your life to offset the misery of being, that being in debt will cause. So do you know how to practice contentment? I think we just go back to Psalm 23 and just learn to say over and over, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or maybe to say a little differently, what I have in God far surpasses anything I don't have in this world. I will be satisfied with him even if nothing else comes my way. 
So stop and think for a moment. Think of how you can practice that in your finances, your career, your marital status, in your acquisitions, in your possessions. I mean, imagine waking up every morning and saying, the Lord is my shepherd and I don't need anything more than that. Now, here's the third thing Paul is teaching us, to leave a legacy of generosity. Listen to verses 18 and 19 of chapter 6. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, Paul's words here are kind of reminiscent of the words of Jesus back in Matthew chapter 6. You can read those in verses 19 and 20. Where, where Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. So the question you're probably thinking is, how do I store up treasures in heaven? Answer, you give and bless others and you start doing it right now. Now, I've heard people say, well, you know, Pastor, when I start making money, I'll be very generous with my abundance. Well, that works about as well as the idea that you'll start working hard when you get a decent job. If you're not generous now, there's no reason to think you're going to be generous later. So right now is the time to start creating your legacy. And even if you only have a little to give, you give what you can. Solomon's wisdom, Proverbs 19:70. He says, he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward him for what he has done. Or in chapter 22 of Proverbs, verse 9, a generous man will himself be blessed for he shares his food with the poor. And again, here's another paradox. Even though we don't give just to get, it's impossible to give without getting something back, even if just a simple thank you. See, the Bible in Galatians 6, 7 teaches that you reap what you sow. And in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, it says, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So if you were to ask me, hey, Barry, why do we give? Well, let me give you four quick reasons. We, we, give, we should give for the pleasure of giving. Second, we should give for what the gift will do for other people. Third, we should give for the glory it will bring to God. And fourth, we should give for the spiritual growth it will yield in our own lives. See, that's, that's doing something now just to stretch your soul. When you give, you stretch your soul. You become more like Jesus. You bless his people. You create a legacy that will outlive you, that will, in fact, follow you to heaven. Well, that's the end of chapter 6, but maybe some of you are wondering, but whatever happened now to Timothy? Well, as I mentioned in week one of this message series, according to tradition, he stayed on in Ephesus for about 30 years after receiving Paul's first letter. In those 30 years, he led the church in Ephesus and he preached the gospel with, with boldness. But at some point, he was put into prison, much like his mentor, Paul, and his release is mentioned in the closing verses of the book of Hebrews. You can read about that. But sometime around the year 90 AD, when Timothy was an old man, he protested a pagan festival dedicated to the goddess Diana, and he was literally drugged through the streets and stoned to death. And yes, friends, this is how the lives of many Christians, especially Christian leaders, ended in the first century. And let's be honest, it still happens to Christians today. But you see, Timothy began as an apprentice to Paul. Paul led him to faith in Christ, and afterwards Timothy worked with Paul, traveled with him, learned from him. And Timothy began as a disciple and ended his life as a great disciple maker in the kingdom of God. Well, friends, you and I 
can take that same journey. And hopefully we've been doing that. We've been on that journey for the last six weeks. That means living a life of love and mercy and transformation. It means wanting for others what God wants for them. It means dedicating yourself to becoming a person of character and training yourself to be godly. It means taking care of others. And it means taking care of yourself. That you do your job with an attitude of integrity. That you manage your money with an attitude of contentment. And that you leave a legacy built on generosity. This is what it means to be a disciple. And may God use all of us greatly as we seek to follow his example.